You're listening to the Pure Desire Podcast, your safe place to find hope, healing, and freedom from sexual addiction, betrayal, and relationship issues. Hi, I'm your host, Ashley Jamison, and you are listening to episode 239 of the Pure Desire Podcast, Women's Takeover. Here joining me is my lovely co-host, Heather Kolb. Of course, I'm the one joining you. Mm -hmm. Who else would join you when the women get to take over the podcast again, even though it's been a while? It has, and we're very excited to take it over today. Today, we have Dr. Barbara Steffens on our episode, and we're very, very excited because she is the author of Your Sexually Addicted Spouse, and she is just a wealth of knowledge when it comes to healing from betrayal trauma. So we're excited to get to dive in and talk about healing today. Yeah, and she really is one of the, um, really one of the women who blew open this idea that when when women experience betrayal, that there's so much trauma that goes with that. And I think really it was her that, that paved the way for a lot of us when it comes to now having more of a trauma-informed approach when it comes to helping women who've experienced betrayal. Yeah. So for those of you who have heard and, uh, you know, have gained this knowledge and understanding of the addict brain, this is going to be so good to have this other side of what's happening with the partner of somebody who's betrayed them and there's been trauma. Um, So we get to dive into that. And I really think if you're the person experiencing betrayal trauma or if you're the spouse of somebody Mm -hmm. experiencing it, you will get a lot out of this episode. Before we get into today's episode, here's a few things. Subscribe to the podcast. If you're not subscribed to the podcast, do it. Don't wait. You can find us on all major platforms and please give us a review. It helps more people see the podcast and it also means a lot to us. Follow us on social media. You can do that by following us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at Pure Desire PDMI. And if you like to consume video content, the full episodes are available on YouTube. Just search Pure Desire Ministries. All right. Well, here's our time with Dr. Barbara Steffens on healing from betrayal. Okay. Well, today we have Dr. Barbara Steffens with us. She is the author of Your Sexually Addicted Spouse, and she gets to be here today to talk to us about healing from betrayal trauma. So thank you for being with us, Dr. Steffens. I know that a lot of our women and men are excited to hear from you today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Yes. Sorry. Well, let's just jump in. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work you do for Absats and better yet, what is Absats? Okay. Well, I can start with me and my work. Um, so I am a professional clinical counselor, so licensed in the state of Ohio. I've been doing counseling since about 1990 something, early 90s. Um, I'm also a board certified coach. I'm also working at becoming semi-retired. So I'm doing very little clinical work now. I don't have an office anymore. I work all virtually. And I'm doing some coaching with partners, very limited. And then I do a lot of training and educating professionals and um, religious leaders Mm -hmm. around betrayal trauma. And I do that through APSATS which is the Association of Partners of Sex Addicts Trauma Specialists, which is why we say APSATS. And I was part of a group that formed that organization. I guess we were officially formed in 2012. And we started doing trainings for clinicians. And then later we added coaches um, on how to help betrayed partners and then the entire system from a trauma-informed perspective. 
So other just personal things about me, I'm a mom, I'm a grandma and wife, and uh, this July will be our 49th wedding anniversary. Wow. Well, congratulations. <laughs> that is amazing. Wow. Wow. Great. Well, thank you so much for being here to share with us about ABSATs and your work. And we're just really excited to dig into this episode. Yeah. There's just so much here that we could cover, but we're going to try and stick with our questions and, and see where that takes us. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about specifically the multidimensional partner trauma model? Sure. Um, when we were starting to look at how do we help people understand and then respond to the trauma that partners were experiencing, um, let's see. So the whole trauma perspective really started when I did research back in 2005, and that's kind of the basis for your sexually addicted spouse. So I was really looking for a trauma-informed way of helping the partner. And I started reading Judith Herman, um, Trauma and Recovery, and really found that her three-phase approach to helping people who have experienced you know, complex trauma and we can talk about that in a little bit, what that is. Um, and so I worked at trying to kind of adapt that model to working specifically with partners. And that became the multidimensional partner trauma model. So it's a three-phase model where we start with safety and stabilization for the traumatized person. And then once they feel safe and stable, stable means they're finding ways of managing how they're feeling mm -hmm. and their behaviors. Um, then move into the deeper trauma work, the grief work, those kinds of things. And then phase three is more the now what? What do I want to do now with my life or in this relationship? Can I remain in this relationship? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's the moving on and then post-traumatic growth mm -hmm. in that, that three phase. So that's the multidimensional partner trauma model. And we apply it to the partner, to the person with the addictive behavior, and really the entire system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember in my early days of disclosure, my husband's disclosure, just feeling completely irrational, like my nerves were on the outside of my body, um, that I just had this constant energy running through. I was crying. I was throwing things. I was completely not myself. And I remember my husband just feeling like I was overreacting. Mm. I was crazy. I went to our church back then and asked for help and and they would say, um, you know, like everybody deals with this and you just need to forgive. And and I felt completely insane until one day I heard about um, betrayed spouses experiencing a chemical shift as well mm -hmm. and and that they needed healing from trauma. And so when when you explain the PTSD in partners, it's just, I think it brings so much understanding to the addict and the spouse because yeah. a lot of addicts and even clinicians, they don't understand what a betrayed spouse is experiencing. So can you explain some about PTSD in partners and how this shows up in their brain and behaviors? Um, that's such a big question. <laughs> So, first of all, um, not all partners will experience post-traumatic stress disorder, which is PTSD, 
but we do find the majority um, have some level of trauma symptoms. So like I said, in 2005, I did my research and I found that 70% of the women met all the criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder, mm -hmm. except maybe there's this one pesky one where it says where it has to be life-threatening. Mm -hmm. And I always say, uh, tell a partner that finding out about your loved one's hidden sexual secrets aren't life-threatening right? Mm -hmm. because it threatens every part of life. Mm -hmm. So anyway, there's this shock, usually around discovery or maybe the person with the addictive behavior um, discloses, but it's previously unknown information, and then it's a shock to the system. All of a sudden, that individual does not feel safe. Mm. There's a threat. It's a perceived threat. It's a real threat, mm -hmm. and it can feel life-altering and life-threatening, Yes, and that's why it, it sets up that, that trauma response. So our, in our brain, I'm not a brain person, I am a, I like to help people person, but I understand that God created us with the capacity of protecting ourselves mm -hmm. and reacting to threats really, really quickly. And so that's what happens. It's just automatic response. Am I safe? What do I need to do? Do I need to run away? Do I need to collapse? Do I need to fight? Mm -hmm. So that's something that we were created with. And that's what get triggered, gets triggered in the partner. When all of a sudden she says, am I safe with this person that I thought was my safest person? Mm -hmm. I thought this was the person that had my back. And now they are putting me in great risk and in great jeopardy. So it feels crazy. It can look crazy to the outside, but it's, it's the whole body's nervous system responding to yeah. that threat. Yeah. That's that's what it is. Yeah. And so once partners understand that, they can give some grace to themselves. Mm -hmm. And for the person with the addiction, it really helps them to understand that, first of all, to understand she's not crazy. Mm -hmm. She's reactive right now, but it's with good reason because she doesn't know she's safe. And for the person with the addiction, I think it's helpful too to understand that because it's just another way of understanding you know, the reality and the consequences of, of our behaviors. They do have consequences. Mm -hmm. And this is a tough one. It traumatizes the relationship as well as the partner. Exactly what you were saying reminds me, uh, even yesterday, was it yesterday? Day before yesterday, before I was about to fly out, because it's always about, it's always right before I'm about to leave town that something like this happens. But um, I was telling Heather that we were setting up a computer for my son's 3D printer and um, all this, it did an update. And then when the update finished, all this porn popped up on the computer. My 10-year-old was sitting there um, and he went and told dad that there's tons of inappropriate images on the computer. But I subconsciously was, went like triggered. And mm -hmm. the great thing is that because my husband now understands more about betrayal trauma where he didn't before, um, he doesn't use language like, I don't know why it's such a big deal. What's wrong with you? Or And I just, I had the grace for myself too, because I just kept doing life like normal and understood I'm triggered. There's mm -hmm. something in me that's triggered by that. And I'm sure it's um, old history that there's, you know, familiarity in that. But we were able to just kind of go through life and recognize you're triggered, I'm triggered. And he was able to say, I bet that was really triggering for you because of the past. And I said, it was, and I am triggered. Um, 
but then we're able to just kind of like breathe and we prayed and, and it was just an acknowledgement, but it wasn't controlling. Like it would have been in the past where I would have probably shut down and got suspicious and those kinds of things. So, um, I just think if everybody who's going through betrayal or affairs or anything like that can, if they both can understand, like you said, that family healing, that systems healing, it just does amazing things without blame. Um, you can just recognize the trauma. Yeah, it's just part of reality that that's going to happen. It's a wound, it's an injury. And if it gets triggered, then there's going to be a reminder of that mm -hmm. original injury. Mm -hmm. And it may recall some of those thoughts. Am I safe right now? What is this? Mm -hmm. And then you probably, as you've worked through that trauma, figured out ways of managing it for yourself, what helps and then do those things, and then the trigger calms down. But right. it's just just part of the reality. I think a lot of partners are surprised how long, I mean, in terms of years, mm -hmm. you can still experience triggers mm -hmm. after a traumatic event. But if you think about any other kind of traumatic event, it makes total sense that if that was a, a time and a space where you didn't feel safe and you have a reminder of it, that it's going to evoke that again. So I always say to partners, you know, do not shame yourself. Don't let anyone else shame you if you're triggered. Mm -hmm. It's a normal physiological, emotional response, but it does get better over time. If you address it, attend to it, find ways of managing it. And especially if the people in your family, the people in your system, especially the betrayer, can get that and understand. And that's part of a deep part of the healing. Right. Yeah. yeah. That makes so much sense. So you yeah. mentioned this briefly um, when we started this conversation, but can you explain to us then the difference between uh, complex PTSD and how that's different from other forms of PTSD? Sure. I think we tend to think of more traditional PTSD as like a single event. You know, it's a one-time thing. Um, it's surviving a hurricane or tornado or being assaulted, and that event has ended. With complex trauma, that feeling unsafe or there's many events um, where that, that sense of not being safe and feeling traumatized continues. It's, so it's usually thought of within the context of relationships. Mm. So think of a child growing up and their caregivers continually neglect them or occasionally abuse them, but it's the environment becomes traumatic. And so for complex trauma for a partner, it can be two things. It can be either they've had prior stuff in their family of origin, and here's just yet another time where they're not safe in a relationship. Or it could be that there's been this, this kind of chronic feeling unsafe even before discovery where the partner is already feeling not feeling safe, is triggered, does, but doesn't understand why, doesn't know why. Maybe there's some kind of manipulation going on, but it's more this chronic sense of not feeling safe. Mm -hmm. So think about a partner with a one-time discovery and her loved one says, okay, I've stopped. But everything in her body, in her gut, in her soul is saying, ah, but something's still going on. And so they still don't feel safe. And if that goes on for a prolonged period of time, then that's much more the complex trauma. Mm, that makes sense. And it affects sense. not only the, the kinds of symptoms that we see in 
you know, what we call classical trauma or PTSD, but it also it impacts how they feel about themselves, how they view the world, um, their other relationships, not feeling safe anywhere with anyone. So it's much more globalized rather than specific to that, that single event. Mm. Um, and I think most partners, it's much more the complex trauma, especially the, the longer that someone has been acting out secretively and the partner didn't know about it. I think that um, increases that level of trauma and increases that time of not feeling safe. Right. Yeah. I remember you saying during the ABSATS training um, that when a partner is stuck to see where they're still not feeling safe. And I thought that was, that really just resonated with me. That just was such good advice. Yeah. A lot of times what partners hear is, why are you stuck? Why are are you not doing your own work? Mm -hmm. Why aren't you focusing on your own healing? And so it's put on the partner when I really want to know what else is going on. Are there conflicting messages that they're receiving? Um, Is everything inside of them still not feeling safe and their loved one is not doing things um, to help them know that they're safe? But to explore that, if someone's stuck, there's a reason. Right. Mm -hmm. How can a partner, what's the best way for them to begin the healing process? And what does that look like when they're first starting? Well, I think for a lot of partners that that first inclination is I can't tell anyone this. Mm -hmm. They feel a sense of their own shame. Like what's wrong with me that this happened to me? What didn't I do? What should I have done differently? Am I not enough? Whatever those kinds of words are that are going in their head. And so that sense of shame keeps them from telling. So the first thing would be to find a safe person to talk to about it. Mm -hmm. Um, There's so many fears there that partners have of connecting and, and telling someone they're afraid people are going to think differently about them, think differently about their loved one. Um, so I usually talk about, you know, share small things first. So just say, say to someone, hey, I'm having a rough time. Will you pray for me? And then if that person says, okay, I'm glad to do that. How can I help? Rather than being in kind of intrusive and asking a lot of questions. So you're kind of testing safety, but find someone. Now, there are so many more resources for partners. So by the time someone contacts me, they've usually been online and they've looked at all different options and places, which is wonderful because 20, 25 years ago, there was very little, if nothing, for partners. So, But the first thing is to acknowledge that you've been wounded and that you deserve support. Yeah, that's so good. And another reason why I'm so thankful to have you on the podcast because um, I remember when I was first looking, a lot of the things you were saying, you know, applied to me that I was, you know, people are going to think I must be a bad wife. I must not, you know, keep him happy or my, they're going to think my husband's a creep because they don't understand things. (laughs) Um, But I didn't know what it was called. So then you just start, you know, Googling and you have no idea what it's called. And now there's so many people sharing that this is this is a thing. It has a name. There is there is healing, um, and what you're experiencing is real. And many other people experience it as well. So um, I'm just so thankful for, for the work that you do in mm-hmm. Absats and the podcast and everything that's out there and training leaders 
you know, to be more aware. There are so many more trained people now that can be there. Um, online groups, a lot of coaches, Abscess has trained a lot of people who um, have excellent training and certification as um, coaches. And they can provide a level of service, a good clinician can, who has training in this. If you, a lot of times what happens is people will think, well, this is a marriage problem, so I'm going to go to a marriage counselor. Right. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, a lot of marriage counselors don't know a lot about this. And so they may approach it as, it, as if it is a marriage issue rather than a compulsion issue mm-hmm. or an addiction issue or a betrayal issue. And sometimes then partners feel harmed, they feel missed, misunderstood, and then they pull away from getting support. I am always amazed at the um, courage and the tenacity for partners who continue to look for the kind of support that they know they need and that they deserve. You're not getting support because there's something wrong with you. You're getting support because something happened to you. That's really good. Reminder. Yeah. Um, that's true. That's good encouragement for people that if you don't find the help you need or you get hurt or experience Mm -hmm. some institutional trauma or anything like that to keep going and that there are people that can help you and continue to look for that help. Yeah. So good. So, um, when it comes to safety, because we've talked a little bit about that, how does a partner, um, go about establishing safety when they really don't even know what's happening to them and they don't they can't explain why they're feeling what they're feeling what does it look like for them to start establishing safety hmm, another big question um, <laughs> all the hard ones <laughs> all the good ones all the good ones well I think the first thing is recognizing that you don't feel safe just helping a partner have words around that is that I don't feel safe. And then you ask the question, well, what would help you feel a little safer? So start small. What might help you feel a little safer? Maybe it's um, some distance. Maybe it's, I know I need an hour to myself Mm -hmm. just to go in my room and, and not be disturbed and read or talk to someone, but to have a little space. Um, Sometimes it's surprising for partners when they realize that the greatest trigger is their loved one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So maybe his face, his voice, his hands, whatever it is. And so taking some space away from that kind of trigger for a period of time, especially early on, I'm not talking about separation. I'm talking about taking it upon yourself to say, I need some space mm-hmm. for me to help me feel safer, to calm, those kinds of things. So it may start just as simple as that. Another thing might be to start to think about, okay, you didn't know you weren't safe before. Now you know these things. Um, What are important essentials for you going forward in the relationship? Um, If safety means it is not okay with me that you look at porn, that's never going to be okay with me then part of safety is saying that, Mm -hmm. letting that person know they're not going to read your mind to know that. They probably have a good guess. (laughs) Um, But to state it and then say, but, and if this happens, it's so important to me to protect myself. I will need to do something to take good care of me. 
So that's, we call that a boundary. It's just basically saying, I can't control what you're going to do, but I can let you know if you do it, I am going to have to do things to protect myself. So that may mean I'm going to sleep in a different room, or I'm going to ask you to sleep in a different room. Or it may mean I'm not going to talk to you for a little while because you have really put me in jeopardy. Or I'm not going to keep your secret. I'm going to go to our church and ask for some support. Or I'm going to go to my friend and talk to my friend and invite them to come and talk to both of us. There's a whole fun list of things that they can think that they can do. Sometimes partners think that the only way to be safe is to say, um, I need to know where you are every moment of every day. And if you don't let me know, then you're out of the house. That's kind of a big leap. Mm -hmm. So start small and start with something that you know you can do and that that you have control over. Mm -hmm. I can't control another person's behaviors, but it is my responsibility to do something if someone's putting me at risk. And that's usually distancing myself um, or making a change in the routine, but doing something Talking with someone who's trained to help you figure that out is so helpful. That is so Mm -hmm. hard to do all by yourself. Again, there's more resources out there. But really having a dialogue with someone around when don't you feel safe and what's the first step you can do in setting that kind of of line or boundary for self-protection is really helpful. Sometimes I have partners think that setting a boundary or staying safe is about having consequences or punishment for their loved one. Mm-hmm. That doesn't work. It does not work. So it really is what can you do to protect and, and uh, feel safe yourself? Yeah. But that that's why so you important. need the support around that process. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's good too, what you said earlier about um, sometimes the, the complex trauma causes the environment to be really Mm -hmm. unsafe and triggering because early on in my recovery or healing from trauma, I did think, okay, if I just know everything you're doing, everything you're looking at, everywhere you are, everybody you're talking to, then I'll feel safe. And then later, um, again, that importance of having somebody outside of your traumatized brain to help you, I realized it was that environment I couldn't think clear. And so now, you know, the last time that we went through something, um, I... I just took my kids to the hotel because I know that when I'm traumatized, I shut down as a parent. Um, if I stay in the environment, I just kind of swirl in it and get deeper. And so it's so good for me to just say, kids, we're going to a hotel. I can focus on being a parent. I can feel this lightness of not being in that environment. And then I have more of a rational brain. Um, mm-hmm. And it's really helpful. But I don't think early, early in my years, I would have thought that was a good idea because it seems counterintuitive to a partner to say, I need some space when what you really want to do is cling on and feel like you have every ounce of knowledge you could possibly get. And, um, and it's just so important to have those outside voices to help you see where you're feeling unsafe and stuck and, and create safety there. It's also empowering. Mm -hmm. One thing about trauma is it can feel disempowering. It happens to you. You don't have a say in it. You didn't ask for it, you didn't give consent for it, and it just invades and you feel like powerless. 
good boundaries and a sense of being able to take care of yourself is empowering. And that's what we want after trauma, mm-hmm. any kind of trauma, is to start to experience that sense of, I am not out of control of what happens to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, some things happen and I can't do anything about it, but I can control how I'm going to respond and how I protect myself going going um, forward. Mm-hmm. So very empowering to be able to do those things. Yes. But early on, it makes total sense that the partner is thinking, well, if I know more, then I'm going to be able to protect myself. Because what they know is what I didn't know hurt me. Mm-hmm. So I yes. never want to not know again. Yes. But finding other ways, other strategies over time, so that they can feel safe based on what they choose to do rather than I need to find out everything he's doing. Right. So, but that's a process. So again, mm-hmm. I never ever shame a partner for looking for more information, asking a lot of questions. We really frame that in terms of you just want to know if you're safe or not. Right. Mm-hmm. How can you help yourself be safe? Right. Right. Yeah. But it's a great way to say it's a slow that. process. So slow. So can you tell us how, (laughs) how does a support group for a betrayed partner help and play into this healing process? Oh, I just think a support, a good support group is a lifeline because you're going to be with other people going through very, very similar things. And they're going to get you the moment you walk in. Mm -hmm. I remember I I started doing this work by running groups. And I remember a woman walking in and saying, "Um, what are you all doing here? You're beautiful. Which revealed her belief that there's something wrong with me or this wouldn't have happened. But every other woman in that group, you know, could understand why she would say something like that. Mm-hmm. And then another thing we would talk about in group is welcome to the sorority you never asked to join. Yes. <laughs> I love that. There's, I love there's that. a bond. There's a bond that happens because it's a shared experience and they get each other and they can speak truth to each other in ways that someone else can't because they're walking the same walk. They're experiencing a lot of the same things. Right. So it's a great place to share wisdom, to be safe. Um, to learn new things, to try new things. So I, I just really think group for partners is a lifeline. Well, I remember you talking about how the language center goes offline and all these symptoms that can happen. And I found um, being part of a group that somebody else would say something and I'd be like, that's what I, that is exactly what I was feeling and trying to say, but you can't articulate it either. Right, right, right. Yeah, so they're going to help you with language. They're going to help you with skills. They're going to help you just feel heard and understood mm-hmm. in ways that if you're trying to just share with the person who's betrayed you and they're really early in their recovery, they're not going to understand the kinds of words that you're saying or you're right. trying to say. So in a group, they will. And a, a trained group facilitator can help that process and to keep it safe for everyone in the group. Right. So. Yeah, group is, I just think, essential. And I'm so grateful that we have so many wonderful groups now. More all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so good. So we know that um, 
that it's not just women who experience betrayal, that men can also experience betrayal. And so in what you've seen working with partners, have you noticed a difference between maybe the responses that you would see in men compared to women? Or is it basically that when somebody experiences betrayal trauma, that symptomatically there, they behave the same? What do you think? I I think that we don't know a lot yet. Mm-hmm. There's not been, um, we can say anecdotally, you know, just based on observations that mostly it's very, very similar because trauma is trauma. Uh, but there may be some things just culturally for men that are a little different than women. It may be harder for men to reach out. We find that in mental health anyway, that um, men don't approach others for help when there's, you know, an emotional wound or a relational wound. Mm-hmm. Um, So I think that's a difference. And so having more resources for men who are betrayed, I think is really important. Mm -hmm. So that's an area where we need much more information, much more support. Mm -hmm. Um, Just in terms of my own experience with male partners that I've had contact with, it looks very, very much the same. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe they're a little bit more in touch with anger. Um, but there, that that trauma and the kind of hypervigilance and those kinds of things are very, very similar. I've heard from men who have read our book, Your Sexually Addicted Spouse, who said, I wish it was written to me, but if I just change pronouns, it really, yeah. really helped me. It matched my experience. So again, we hear that anecdotally from people, but we, we really need people that love to do research to research yeah. more parts. Definitely. But but to offer specific resources for them, I think would help them reach out for for, um, assistance. And we've had more people go through the APSATS training who really want to focus on helping male partners. So I think we're we're growing in that direction. Yeah. That'd be so good because, um, you know, part of my job at Pure Desire is overseeing the women's groups. And before we had um, our online groups, we would hear that a lot of women who were the addict or the struggling spouse saying, I just feel more shame when I'm given a male resource. And so more female resources for strugglers and more betrayal resources for men is just going to be, I think it's like you say, we're going to see more people reaching out when they don't have Mm -hmm. to have that extra shame of using a girl resource or a men's resource. Or having to translate, you know, if right. you're reading a book, having to translate it to them so yeah. that the scenarios, the stories match who right. they are. I would love to see more groups for male partners. Yes, yes. Well, I have, I think, a million dollar question. What okay. is gaslighting? We hear the term gaslighting, and I know that betrayed partners are probably saying, yes, please explain what that mm-hmm. is. Um, because nobody wants to experience it. So can you tell us what gaslighting is and maybe give us a couple examples? Okay. Well, gaslighting is kind of a, we think of it as focusing on you. You're the one with the problem as a way of deflecting from my problem. So that's a a description, you know. So if a partner comes to their loved one and, and says, I'm really feeling hurt. I'm triggered. I'm thinking maybe you're acting out. And he goes, well, there you go again, always assuming bad things and assuming I'm bad. That can be a form of gaslighting because what's happened is he's deflected. Don't pay any attention to what I'm doing. And then he's putting attention back on the partner that this is your problem, not my problem. 
Mm. Right. And there's degrees of that. You know, there can be, I think a lot of people who are trying to hide secrets, they're going to gaslight. They're going to try to, again, deflect. Mm -hmm. But the serious type of gaslighting is more that prolonged. This is, this is their way of managing life and managing relationships is um, not taking ownership of or not even being aware of their own things and always deflecting on the other person. And if someone's in a relationship where that is ongoing and kind of a normal part of how um, their loved one protects themselves, that can be really destructive for the person on the receiving end of it. So not everyone who says, um, you know, I'm tired of you bringing this up is gaslighting. Right. But the prolonged, if this is a primary way of protecting themselves and protecting their secrets or keeping the other person off kilter, um, then that's a serious form of gaslighting. And it's really important to get some help with that. Because if you have someone telling you you're bad, you're wrong, it's all about you, you're the one with the problem all the time, you really start to believe that. Mm -hmm. And then that person starts to shrink and get smaller and trust their perceptions and their ability to test reality much less. Um, So it's on a continuum. There's, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of, we pretty much see it pretty common when someone's trying to hide, you know, their sexual secrets. And then we can see it to this other extent where it really becomes a form of psychological abuse for the person on the receiving end. Yeah. And I'll get women that will say, I just, I just wish something would, I wish you would hit me. I wish I would see an affair because they get to this point of feeling crazy Mm -hmm. that they, but then when they try to explain it, they look crazy. Mm -hmm. And like you said, they start to believe it and, um, and they're just, they just want something concrete to put a name to what's going on in their marriage. And it's, it's a really subtle form of abuse sometimes. It it really Mm -hmm. can be a subtle form of abuse. And That's another reason why I really promote groups, because within Mm -hmm. a group, a partner starts to describe what the conversations are like. Someone else on the outside outside can say, wow, that sounds like that would really be hurtful for you. That sounds gaslighting. Um, And doing some education in a group about Mm -hmm. what that looks like. So Mm -hmm. that the person can step away from it. It's not like you're going to stop the other person from doing it. But just like we talked about safety and boundaries, it's the kind of thing where if you can recognize it, you can say, oh, this is happening. I can feel it. And mm-hmm. I am going to opt out. I'm going to step out of it. I don't have to stand here and defend myself when no matter what I say, it's not going to make any difference. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Amen to that. Yeah. And so yeah. can you just kind of piggybacking off that, um, describe what it looks like, what emotional or psychological abuse looks like? In terms of the person who is doing the abuse or on the um, victim's end of it? Probably just for partners so that they can recognize what it looks like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, For partners, I think emotional abuse or psychological abuse is going to look like and feel like um, it is all your fault. You're the one responsible. Um, You feel crazy. You feel misunderstood all the time. You may find yourself trying to have these long conversations to um, get your point across or to be heard. And it's always deflected and you're not getting a response back of understanding. 
then that can be um, abusive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, There's so many different forms, but the, the byproduct is always that the person feels hurt, not heard and wounded Mm -hmm. rather than listened to and affirmed and understood. Um, so if, if it's chronic where that person just does not want to understand you, that's what it feels like, or you leave conversations feeling crazy, um, if you feel demeaned and put down, um, held responsible for things you're not responsible for, then those are signs of abuse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's yeah. a really good way to describe it because I can get in an argument with my husband or a disagreement and know we are not seeing eye to eye on this, but I don't feel like he's trying to demean me, put me down, you know, so there is a difference. Um, And I know, you know, once a woman is, or a partner has been in a situation for a long time. So when Mm -hmm. I've led my, you know, women's groups for betrayed partners, um, a lot of times by the time they get to group, have a hard time putting in boundaries um, because they're afraid the person will leave. Um, They're afraid it will create too much conflict. They're afraid for their kids. There can be so many reasons or they see it wrong as a Christian spouse. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I've, you know, I've experienced that in my groups and I'm curious, what do you do and how do you help a partner see the significance um, of a boundary and that it's a good thing? Mm -hmm. If they've experienced prolonged sense of not being important, not being heard and, you know, not validated, setting a boundary is a major feat. Mm -hmm. That takes us a sense of internal strength. And someone who's been living in a chronically unsafe environment, it's going to be a while before they feel strong enough to say, I want to use my voice. I want to make a choice and take a stand with something. So I approach it slowly and gently around what's one small thing you can do where maybe only you can tell you're doing it, but you are taking a stand for yourself. And then that's boundary. Mm -hmm. So take it small, take it slow, but understand that, again, in, in these more abusive kinds of situations, which is, you know, not every situation, but it's often enough we need to talk about it. Um, if that's been going on chronically over a period of time, it's going to be really hard for that person. So go slow, take small steps. Don't jump to the big boundary of, if you yell at me again, you have to leave the house. You know, if he's been not emotionally um, caring and kind, it's not likely he's going to leave the house because you tell him to. So what can you do if he starts yelling at you again what's one thing you can do that's really and then good start working towards that way sometimes i think we we expect partners especially if it's been in this prolonged environment of not feeling safe we expect partners to be able to just do these boundaries immediately and it's like you know going to the gym for the first time every <laughs> year. You have to start small, and you pick up the small weights, and then build up to something bigger. So understand that they're starting from a place of not believing they even have a voice. Yeah. So again, a plug for group. In group, you have a voice, and everyone hears yes. you. Yes. Yeah. And that those are wonderful places to start working on. What's the next small step that I can take? 
to take good care of myself. Yeah. Really think of boundaries as that. I'm taking care of myself. I'm honoring myself. I'm honoring this body and this person that God created by doing things to take care of me. Yeah, so good. So we've talked a lot about um, really good things to help the partner. And so what is there anything else that you would add for somebody who maybe is sitting in the sidelines and they're watching one of their loved ones um, going through betrayal trauma? How could we then encourage that partner? Do you have any other suggestions for that scenario? Okay, so this is a friend, family member. You mm-hmm. can observe these things going on. Um, first of all, make sure you're praying for them. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a horrible place to be all by yourself, right? Yeah. It can be very isolating. And then the next thing would be to make sure they know that you see them. You know, I see what you're going through. I can see this is a really hard time. And then ask. Is there anything I can do or what kinds of things might help you? Mm. Um, What I hear from a lot of partners is just someone saying, I'm here and I will listen and I don't blame you. This Mm. is not your fault. That that goes so far in helping them uh, feel seen and heard. Betrayed partner feels neglected, tossed aside. So practically just be that listening ear, that safe person. Um, A lot of times partners need practical help. So they're in betrayal trauma, their body, their mind, um, their nervous system is on fire. And so thinking about what am I going to make for dinner Mm -hmm. or what in the world am I going to do for my kids? Um, Bring them a meal. Mm, Yeah. Have the kids over and, and feed them. Give them a break. Do things that are very practical because, again, for a betrayed partner, especially early on, Those kinds of things might be a nice distraction for a period of time, but they also might feel impossible to attend to. Just like if there had been a sudden death or Mm -hmm. a significant illness, um, we know how to respond when that happens. Do the same things. Yeah, that's good advice. Offer Mm -hmm. that kind of practical support as well as being a listening ear that's safe and doesn't share with other people. That's really good. Yeah. Really good. Great advice. You're just full of wisdom. I told Heather when we were writing these questions, it's not enough time. <laughs> we were going through the Absats book, you know, and highlighting all of our favorite parts. And uh, we just really appreciate you joining us today and just sharing about what you do and getting the word out there about betrayal trauma and how real it is and mm-hmm. that there is hope for it. There is healing and there is hope for it. So thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for what you're doing and for this conversation, because I know that it's going to be encouraging. Yes. The women who don't feel encouraged, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. And remember, wherever you're at on your journey, Pure Desire is here to help create a roadmap for healing. If you or someone you know is impacted by sexual brokenness or betrayal trauma, go to puredesire.org and let's start the healing journey today. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Each week we put out new content to help you on the road to healing and freedom. And lastly, never stop being healthy.